we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. Welcome to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. My conversation today is with Pastor Robert Radcliffe. Robert is a pastor at the Riverside Friends Church in Mason City, Iowa. Riverside is the Quaker Church. Quakers played a pivot role in the Iowa Underground Railroad, and most of them were radical abolitionists against the institution of slavery. You could find them from Salem to Springdale. Since Iowa was a free state, slaves were running away from Missouri instead of Kansas to find a safe haven in Iowa. And Quakers were able and willing to provide that safe haven, even though that act meant breaking the federal laws. Today, I want to understand Quakers' faith, beliefs, and courage. To do so, I decided to come to Riverside Friends Church to talk to Pastor Robert. Pastor Robert, how are you? I'm doing well, Eric. Thanks for having me here today. Mm-hmm. I appreciate Absolutely. that. And thanks for the gift of your time. Let's get right into it. Mm-hmm. How long have you been a Quaker? I've been a Quaker for the last 10 years, about 12 years. I became a Quaker on December 23rd, 2007. Wow. You I was 17 years, four months, and eight days old. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. You remember exactly the date. Why, yeah. why is that? Well, I didn't grow up a Christian. I didn't grow up with any faith at all. So nobody in my family believed. And I really started to become a believer when this cute girl in my high school invited me to attend a Bible study. (laughs) (laughs) So I really went because I wanted her phone number. And she said no. She was a Quaker? She was. Okay. So I went back to that Bible study the next week and I got her phone number. So I had already signed a contract to go into the army at that point. So a couple of days later, on that fateful Saturday, December 23rd, 2007, I was driving my grandpa's Dodge Grand Caravan coming off of I-80 onto 235 there on the north side of Des Moines. I ended up hitting a patch of black ice. We ended up just kind of sliding around and then we ended up flipping down the highway. And so there's a, there's a set of train tracks that run right under the 235 right there near the North Mixmaster. And I can remember like sitting there like in the cold because all the windows were broken out at this time. I had my brother beside me, my mom and dad in the back seats. You know, for as far as I can tell, for about the first time in three generations, like I prayed right there. Wow. And nobody in my family going up you know, generationally didn't have any faith as far as I can tell. And so I can remember like breathing that cold air in yeah. and then praying. Do you remember your prayer? No. No? No. I was just very thankful that God had, because I remember like turning and seeing my brother and turning to see my mom and turning to see my dad in the back seat and like recognizing that they were all okay and recognizing that like the whole roof had caved in, things like that, just from being upside down. Wow. What was your view of God before that? Oh, I was, I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God at all. I mean, I thought he was probably like a crutch for people that, you know, I mean, they couldn't get on without him or something. And, you know, I'm trying to remember back now to like what my philosophy was as a high schooler. And yeah. I, I'm sure as a high schooler, I thought my philosophy was incredibly deep and rich and intellectual. And You knew everything. Knew everything, <laughs> as all high schoolers do, I'm sure. You know, after I got out of high school, I've forgotten everything because I'm not sure I know everything anymore. So you're not a you're not only the first generation quirk in your family. Yeah. You're also the first generation believer. Yeah. Was there any pushback from your family member? 
a, a little, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how did that play it out? Because this thing can split the family easily. Sure. You know, there was things that we would do on, on Sundays, like that just family rituals. Uh, yeah. Every Sunday morning, my grandpa would make pancakes. I had to be at church at, at 1030. And, you know, that was about the time that grandpa would start making the pancakes. Ooh. And so I, I missed out on all the pancake Sundays from, from then out. How, and how, it's did, like, how did grandpa feel about that? You know, it was, it was hard. You know, it was things like that. So yeah. it wasn't like there was like, oh, hey, it's bad that you're a Christian now. It's bad that you're missing these family you're things. You're not spending time with us. Yeah. And so that was the pushback. Okay. How, how was your life growing up? You know, in a way, I was born you know, in, a, in a poor family, but I moved in with my grandparents at a, yeah. at a young age, and that really you know, being with them allowed me to kind of see a different way of living. Yeah. But had I not seen that, you know, the, the neighbors I had, the neighbor kids that I played with growing up, um, before I moved in with my grandparents, like they're all still in my hometown mm. and they're making the same mistakes that yeah. their, that their parents made, that my parents made. Wow. I thank God that I did move in with my grandparents and, and did like get out of that. But I also recognized that, you know, that could have been me as well. Oh yeah. George Fox, mm-hmm. you are founder of the Quaker. Why did he feel the need to start the movement? Because there was, there was already yeah. other denomination going on. What was missing? And so, like, part of understanding that is understanding kind of everything leading up to it as well. Kind of in the 50 years before George okay. Fox was known as, like, this time in England as the people of the book. Like, the Bible had been printed into English, and people were reading it. And Mm. people were reading it a lot, like just reading back through old journals at that time. Historians think like, wow, that was a time that people really started to read the Bible and try to take it in, even in their homes with their families. George Fox comes on the scene in like 1640 or so, a young man. Um, How old was it? Do you know? So he's about 20 or so. Oh boy. Yeah. He's not very old at all. Yeah. And he has this experience where he's out drinking with his buddies and they're going like, hey, who's going to play for the next, who's going to pay for the next round? Mm. And they have this little game they play or something like this. And there's a number of stories about how this story goes. But what happens next is kind of, it's in every story. George eventually gets like so fed up with this that he goes, hey, I'll buy the next round, but I should not be here. And it kind of recognizes that there's something better about like life than just drinking with his buddies. So there's something good passed about people drinking at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Just following George Fox. (laughs) Okay. And so then he goes through this process of just very much spiritual depression. And he goes to all these, there's these new denominations in town that have, Mm. that have started, you know, Martin Luther's done his thing and gone around and he kind of goes from pastor to bishop to priest. And at the end of it, he comes to this point where he thinks he's had this encounter with Jesus. And he says, there is one alone who can speak to my condition. That's Jesus Christ. And he's come to teach us himself. And so then he goes around and starts teaching people this. He had no intention of like starting a denomination or a religion or anything like that. But just that when he was in that depression, he didn't find any help. And the only place that he found that help was Jesus. And so then he starts going and offering that to other people and other people. And I think the Holy Spirit just kind of catches on and they just, they start believing, they start following him. And then they start getting it too. And they start going out and teaching. And so what happens, they end up in, in jail. So George ends up in jail. He, he goes before Judge Darby. So at the time, they're just known as friends, like the Society of Friends, because of Jesus' verse where I no longer call you servants, but friends, because I've made 
the, the Father's will known to you. So that's where the name Friends comes from. That's where from. the name Friends comes. Okay. We're about to learn where the name Quaker came from. Okay. Okay. Because Judge Darby, there, George Fox is in there, and he starts, like, going off. He starts telling the whole people. Everybody's there in the courthouse yeah because there's nothing else to do mm-hmm. and no tiktok to get onto or whatever <laughs> <laughs> no facebook yeah 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 and so you know george goes off and to judge darby what he wrote in his journal is like and the place started to quake so he's like uh. the, and then it became they became known as quakers because, because the place is the place and the people there started to quake what do you guys prefer to be called, Friends or Quaker? I think either one at this either point one? is fine. Yeah, okay. like the name of our church is Riverside Friends, mm-hmm. but both terms are kind of interchangeable at this point. Yeah. What is the Quaker principle of belief? I think that the foundational thing is that, you know, that Jesus Christ is here to teach us himself and that, you know, through his Holy Spirit, we have access to Jesus alive today. That when he rose from the, from the tomb, mm-hmm. He didn't die again, and he sent his his helper, the Holy Spirit. That Spirit's here and active with us. Pacifism. Talk about pacifism a little bit in the Quakers. Yeah, so friends from very early on believe that because everybody, because you and I and everybody else are made in the image of God, we should not be like out there killing Killing the image of God. And so this is something I had to reconcile because I was in the army. I had already signed my contract when I, when I was saved. And so I had to reconcile with this fact that, you know, killing somebody, what if they're not a believer? What does that mean for them eternally? What does that mean for like me to do that to the image of God? And so like for me, I'm a strong pacifist at this point. Okay. So break down those branches of the Quaker for me. Right. So there's a few branches of Quakers from very conservative, okay. which is like totally unprogrammed. They don't even like have a pastor. And when they meet together, they meet in like total silence and wait for Jesus to like give somebody a message. And then, you know, if God moves somebody to give a message or to speak, we just hope that they'll, they'll do so. And the, the spectrum of belief in Jesus in those churches tends to, to be very broad. There's some people who consider themselves to be friends that don't believe in Jesus at all or are almost like atheistic in their Quakerdom, which to me is like mind-blowing. And then we might have something like all the way to very ecumenical or evangelical friends, mm-hmm. which is kind of closer to where we stand. And there are even some evangelical friends now that are that do practice baptism and communion, like with the elements and all that, yeah. recognizing that those are helpful for some people. To be dunked in water yeah. can be helpful for some people in like recognizing that mm-hmm. hey, I've changed and that this yeah. is really, this is a symbol in my life that, that I've changed. And I want to do this to show other people that. For somebody who is new, they want to become a Quaker. Yeah. How does that process go? You know, I can only kind of speak to like our church here and to the, you know, the, kind of the more evangelical side okay. of Quakers is, you know, just show up to church, come and be a part of it. Okay. So most of the Quakers were very much so anti-slavery. Where is the anti-slavery sentiment came from? So George Fox visited Barbados post-1619. Okay. There, there's slaves in the colonies. He sees them there and he's troubled by it. And he doesn't fully name what it is until a few years later. You know, he preaches and he goes on and there's a semi-famous kind of book that he wrote called Gospel or the Gospel Book or the Gospel Track or something like that. And he talks about that a bit, that owning people is probably wrong. Mm. And he doesn't come kind of full out and out against it yet. Yeah. yeah. And, and we can see other Quakers at the time that were troubled by it, that from the very kind of 
very beginning, like the seeds were there mm-hmm. and they would come out kind of much deeper and much, yeah. much stronger as time goes on. Okay. Yeah. So how, how long before George Fox came out against slavery? You know, it was probably those were tough times. Yeah. It was probably 15, 20 years or so. Okay. He was older by the time that that happened. I think he went to Barbados in the 1650s and this track didn't come out until maybe the 1670s or so. Okay. When did the first time the Quaker start being really vocal about the slavery? So this is well recorded in a John Woolman's journal. So he, he's this Quaker guy. 1757 comes around and he starts like really being pressed by the Holy Spirit that the, the owning of slaves is wrong. It's mm. a moral wrong yeah. and it shouldn't be happening. And so he starts going around. His conviction like grows slowly over time. But in 1757, there's this, this is from his journal. Do you mind if I read it? Yeah, go ahead. It's 1743 that he wrote this in his journal. The thing was sudden, and though the thoughts of writing an instrument of slavery for one of my fellow creatures felt unease, yet I remembered I was hired by the year. That was my master who directed me to do it. So he's talking about that he's supposed to write this like writ to own this like this slave woman for, yeah. for this guy that he's working for. And this is where his conscience first clicks in. So he's having a hard time doing it. So he says that he was hired to do it. He was an elderly man, a member of society who bought her. And so through weakness, I gave way and wrote it. But at the executing it, I was so afflicted in my mind that I said before my master and the friend that I believe slave keeping to be a practice inconsistent with the Christian religion. This is some degree abated my uneasiness. Yet as often as I reflected seriously upon it, I thought I should have been clearer. If I desired to be excused from it as a thing against my conscience, for such it was. Wow. So 1743, he's like asked to, to do this and has this hard time doing it. And that's kind of the, the beginning of, of his journey. And eventually it comes to this point where he no longer wears clothes made of cotton. He starts oh, really? making his own clothes. He learns how to make his own clothes so that he can not be a part of that like cotton owning wow. industry. So he eventually travels kind of all over the place. In North Carolina, by 1800, he had gone to kind of every single friend's church and they were all con- convinced that they shouldn't own slaves. So no friends in North Carolina, like a big slave-owning state, yeah. they had all given up their slaves. Okay. By 1758, workers yeah. in Philadelphia were ordered to stop buying and selling slaves. Right. And by 1780... All Quakers were barred from owning slaves. Mm-hmm. Now, who was making these orders? Because our leadership is so flat. There's yeah. not really a denominational structure. Like at this point, we do have kind of an elder board kind of over our denomination for here in Iowa, mm-hmm. as well as a couple of French churches in Minnesota and, and in Wisconsin. But the guy who's in charge there, we call him our superintendent. Uh, he doesn't really have like a authority there. Instead, he's more of like this keeper of the flame. Like there's these things that we think we can all do together better, okay. you know, missions and things like that. And when pastors need counseling, where do pastors go? So like, wow. that's where we go. Okay. And so he sort of just keeps the vision in, in that. And that's his role and that's his job. What happened with these Philadelphia churches is that they were all just convinced they shouldn't own slaves and that they would just convince one another and then they just kind of solidified that belief inside one another that we shouldn't do this. So it wasn't that it was directed from anybody important, but it was directed from everybody. Man. So when, when did the Quaker came to Iowa? So this was, you know, as part of like westward expansion, you know, kind of everybody's going west in kind of the 18, 
1830s, 1840s, 1850s. And they, friends do that too. There's a number of friends that worked as kind of pastors and preachers. They go around just sharing the gospel and they plant French churches. There's French churches all over Ohio and Indiana. They kind of skipped over Illinois for whatever reason. I don't mm-hmm. know. And then went to Kansas and to Iowa. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the mm-hmm. Iowa Underground Railroad. Super uh, cool story. France played uh, a pivotal role with the Iowa Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Iowa Underground Railroad were Quakers. Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. So our denominational like kind of headquarters or whatever is down in Oskaloosa. They're right next to the William Penn campus. There's a map in William Penn of kind of the Underground Railroad in Iowa as best they can trace it. And then I went back and into our denomination and found a map, all of our French churches and just put them on the map. Mm. And when I overlaid those two, they match up very well. And it's just a testament to like how much the friends did in the underground railroad. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is that slaves would be brought across into Salem. And then from there, they would be kind of dispersed out to one of a couple of cities or a couple, not really cities, towns. And then they would just be moved further and further North until they got to Canada at the time, there is this like a uh, John Brown stuff mm-hmm. going on. And there's other things that are causing tension inside of like specifically Salem friends. Yeah. And so like the friends there in Salem agreed that we should be helping these slaves. Breaking the law in this way is okay. What they had a problem with, some of the people that were hiding slaves were okay with lying to the the slave, what do you call them? Uh, the bounty hunters. The bount- yeah. The church in Salem almost split. Because half the church said, it's okay to lie to the bounty hunters because we're hiding slaves. And the other half said, no, no. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Oof. And anything beyond that's breaking the rules. So I don't feel comfortable lying to these bounty hunters. Even though what we're doing is good, I can't lie to them. And I, I think it shows like the, the level of integrity yes. that these friends, Absolutely. early Quakers held themselves to. Somebody oh. came up with this idea that they believe that these slaves were so well hidden in their homes that when the bounty hunters would come, they'd say to them, you won't find any slaves here. Because they believed they weren't going to find them. They were so well hidden. that, And so even though hiding right under the kitchen table, yeah. they're in the Uwelling house. Like you can still go there. They have the table, they have the, oh, the really? rug, and they have the trap door. And I've been down in there. Oh, really? Yeah. So in, into Salem, even still to this day, the roads, they all, you'll come in and then the road will curve and then it'll curve back in. Mm. And it's so that if somebody did come to take away a slave and like actually captured one of them, they could meet them where that road curved back and meet them there and hopefully get that slave back and rescued before they made it back outside of Salem because it's just a few miles south to the Missouri border. And so like they built the roads, like there's no straight roads out of Salem. They all curve for that reason. They did that on purpose to try to stop like, hey, if they're on a a wagon or whatever, maybe we can get the wagon stopped. And we can convince them to let the slave go. Now, you mentioned John Brown. How do the Quakers feel about John Brown today? You know, history like sees him as such a contentious figure, like even across the, the spectrum of historian. I mean, I can recognize that he's a part of bringing about the completion of the abolitionist movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a certain degree, there's still slavery that happens today, but at least that form of slavery, that like legal codified slavery kind of ended through his, through his actions and particularly at Harper's Ferry kind of brought a lot of that about. Um, and that's a good thing, but I'm also saddened that, you know, there were those people that, that were killed during that. And so I, I wonder if there's a place to be like, 
I'm happy for the outcome and that there's no longer this overt slavery mm-hmm. that exists uh, here in America and at yeah. the same time be saddened by the methods that we got mm-hmm. to be there. Quirk also, like any other religion, they had their share of persecution. Why there was so much hate in Boston against the Quaker? I'm not super sure why it came about, Like, but these Puritans really did not want the Friends or the Quakers inside of Massachusetts. So at first it's Mary Fisher and Anne Austin, like they show up. They're actually the first Quakers in the, in the colonies. Okay. And so they go into Massachusetts and they start trying to share about, you know, the Friends' beliefs and mm. sharing about like that of God and everybody. And the Puritans just do not want to hear it. And so they, they kick them out and they, well, they locked them up. And then they, eventually they put them back on a ship back to England. Oh, really? Yeah. And then two <laughs> days later, yeah. four other people show up again. And this is what happens that, you know, they just kick these two people, put them on it. They'd locked them up four, for weeks. Four comes back. Yeah. And so eventually like Rhode Island opened up. And so then a bunch of Quakers there, a bunch of friends there. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're going out and they're sharing the gospel. They're sharing their beliefs on, you know, friends theology and stuff. And Mary Dyer, uh, she is kind of a part of this Puritan movement. She's in Massachusetts and she's uh, eventually her and her husband are a part of this like almost church split there in Massachusetts that has to do with a couple of, of teachers disagreeing with one another there in the Puritan church and Mary Dwyer and her, and her husband, William, they side with the wrong side. And so she's eventually she has a, a baby, but it's, it's misformed and it's still birth. And the Puritans like look at that as like a sign from God that, oh, she's done something wrong in her life. And so I, I almost feel like these Puritans, they saw this stillbirth, which is just a terrible thing to happen to any parent. And they see it as like, who sinned? Yeah. And it's, it's like, oh, I think they like missed the mark on that. I think in that. And so Mary Dyer's kicked out. She goes back to England for a time and meets up with these Quakers there. And then she comes back to Rhode Island and she makes her way into Massachusetts again. And they recognize her and go, hey, we kicked you out like 10 years yeah. ago or something, what right? You, what, what are you doing back here? Yeah. <laughs> and she, and she, so she starts talking about the light, the light of God in everybody. That's like the friend's belief thing. Like yeah. The light of God in you. And that's, you know, the Holy Spirit. And so they kick her out and say, hey, if you come back and they tell the people that she's with, if you come back again, the capital punishment's waiting you. Mm. So they called it um, banishment upon pain of death. So like Will Robinson, Marmaduke Stephenson, and her, they all, those three returned. Yeah. They, they come back into Boston preaching. They're arrested. The, the two men, Will Robinson and Marmaduke uh, Stevenson, are, are killed. They're, they're, they climb up on a ladder, uh, nooses affixed, and they kick the ladder out from under them. Mary climbs up there as well, and her son, you know, her son's still around, says, wait a minute, it's all planned. The Puritans have coordinated this with her son. And they grant her a reprieve because they know her and they don't want to kill her. She then goes back and going, wait a minute. What did I do that I deserve this to live? This, to live? And they didn't. And they eventually kick her out again. And they say, if you come back, we're going we're gonna to kill you. Yep. And so a couple of years later, she comes back again, preaching the gospel. And wow. you know, she was speaking about this unjust law. She mm-hmm. was speaking that this law that you guys have on the books is wrong. And if you want to kill me for it, for speaking out against it, like, go ahead. What law was she talking about? About the banishment upon pain of death. Uh, the banishment, and if you return, we're going to, oh, okay. you know, capital punishment. 
across Massachusetts, they would like tie them up to wagons and they would like whip them as they pulled them through the town. And eventually popular sentiment kind of won out and yeah. the persecution stopped. And this was just against the Quakers. Just against the Quakers, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. So in today's world, what's the Quaker focusing on in issues like social justice freedom? This is one thing that like really saddens me about about our church today, that there's these conservative friends who've lost Jesus but maintain the social aspect. And then there's the evangelical friends who've lost the social aspect but maintain Jesus. Jesus. And neither side has done has huh. done it well. You know, friends have this rich history of being this abolitionist. And, yes. you know, I've often wondered, like, what does that mean for today? Mm. And I, I don't know that there's, like, a clear answer, but I think because of the times that we live in, Quakers' friends have historically mm. worked on prison reform through the 1800s and really brought a lot of change about. Oh, really? And, I did not know about prison reform. Yeah, because I think that the gospel is moves people Mm-hmm. towards social issues yeah. and towards like reconciling those. And we have a friend's Quaker history that was a big part, big of, that. part of that. And that we yeah. haven't maintained that is very sad for me. Yeah. Why, why you think that is? You know, I think that, you know, as the split continued to grow between the conservative and the evangelical friends that yeah. they just sort of thought, oh, the other one has that side of it. Mm. And that if you want that, you can go to that other side. And that's for the other to do. And I think a lot of our social justice issues today kind of comes down to that, that Mm. somebody else is going to deal with it. I mean, even if you admit that, you know, there's police brutality, somebody else is going to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I hope that the French church and that me as like a French church leader can take this rich, deep Quaker history of social change and reinvigorate it and take this new generation that is hopeful that we can beat climate change. We can help like the Black Lives Matter movement to reestablish kind mm-hmm. of social and racial relationships in this country in a way that's better than it ever has been before. And that we can do that and that the church can lead it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's this, there's this sense like through the whole Bible that God wants to work with his people in bringing mm-hmm. about like healing for the land and healing for the relationship between people and God and people and people. Yeah. You're right about that. There's a lot going on in, hmm. in the country today. Yeah. There's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, right? a lot of confusion. Sometimes I feel like as a people, we are so far apart. Mm. And somebody told me this one time. It's like, you know what, Eric? We just need to start with love. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like you. I'm in the same boat. I struggle with what the solution is. Mm-hmm. What should I do? What mm. my part is, right? Because yeah. I think that's another thing, too. Yeah, I like that, that idea on love greatest like it and the second greatest like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. So I wonder if there is something in that, that, that last couple of words there that Jesus added, you know, as yourself, do I love you, Eric, as much as I love me? Yeah. I think empathy is another mm. thing too. It's, it's, it's the toughest thing for us human beings is to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? right? Once you do that, it changes everything. I think it's probably hard to think about fixing problems outside yeah. when I haven't thought about the problems like in here, in my heart. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, anything else you want to add, Pastor? One of the things that I teach on is that you know, pride's probably the worst of the sins because it doesn't let you see other sin. Ooh. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Well, Matt, we're going to end that one right there, Pastor. Yeah. Well, awesome. Pastor Robert... Really appreciate it, Eric. Really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. It's been for a lot the, of fun. For the gift of your time. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Well, 
Thank you very much, Pastor. I appreciate yeah. it. Yep, thank you. Thank you. Yep. Man, that was Pastor Robert Radcliffe from Riverside Friends Church. Thank you for listening to Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Until next time, peace. <laughs>